1: Welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Klobus, your host for the channel. Today, we're talking with Susan rubenstein demazzi about her new book about the journalist, playwright, and New Deal official Henry Alsberg, entitled Henry Alsberg: The Driving Force of the New Deal Federal Writers Project. Sue, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: Oh, it's our pleasure. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself.
0: Sure. Um, I started as a freelance writer. Um, I wrote for the New York Times and and lots of other publications. Um, I've done a little playwriting, some screenwriting, and then I became a um, community college librarian, and that's at Suffolk County Community College on Long Island. And, um, you know, while I was there, um, y- you get a lot of time to do research and, and you find out a lot of- about a lot of things while you're doing research that you might not have known about. So that's how I found out about Henry Allsberg.
1: So you were doing this research about Henry Allsberg. What basically put you over that threshold from doing, you know, looking up information about Henry Allsberg to deciding that you wanted to write a book about him?
0: Well, actually, what happened was I was doing research – for um, someone at, at the college um, about um, Jackie Robinson, actually. And I, I ended up at the Library of Congress website. And you know how you're on a website and, and you kind of get led to different places. And I came across something called the Federal Writers Project, which was a an AD of the WPA in the 1930s, new deal AD. And I never heard of the Federal Writers Project. And I'll, I'll tell you, I guess, a little bit more about that later. And so I really started doing research on the Federal Writers Project. And um, as I was doing research on the Federal Writers Project, I just couldn't believe I'd never heard of it. And I couldn't believe most other people had never heard of it. And then I came across the person who directed it, and that was Henry Allsberg. Um, So it really was sort of serendipitous, I guess. And the more I started kind of just on the side when I was not busy with other things, you know, at home or on the weekends or in the summer, I started looking into him and I found out all sorts of interesting things about him. Um, you know, his, his political work, his journalism work, and then what he actually did with the Federal Writers Project. And I decided I should look for a book. I want to read more about him. And I went to look for a biography and none existed. And I said, hmm, maybe there should be a biography about Henry Alsberg. And that's sort of how it started. And I started sending out... Um, proposals to publishers, and, and then I was able to uh, get a contract, so, which was sh- sort of shocking but exciting too. So that's really how it started. It really started with Jackie Robinson, which is kind of funny.
1: I just find it fascinating, though, that yours is the first biography, not just – because you know he had this important role in the New Deal, but also he, as you describe it, he had such a fascinating life, and he had a he was- life, and it wasn't just him. I mean, he had this fascinating family. I was wondering if you could explain a bit about his background and 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 his family's background because it was it was a family of incredibly accomplished people.
0: It really was. Well, his his parents. Were, well, his father was a, a German immigrant. His mother had been was born here, um, but it was a German Jewish family. They were pretty agnostic. Actually, his father was described as uh, fiercely agnostic. Um, And he had a brother, Carl. He had two brothers and a sister. His brother, Carl, was um, one of the first heads of the FDA. It wasn't called the FDA then. It was like in the early 1900s. Um, So his brother was very involved in um, government and worked in Washington for a long time. So thank goodness for that, because his brother. There were biographies, one or two biographies, written about his brother. So that helped me learn about his early life. Um, and it was a very intellectual and progressive family. His father and his brothers were more into kind of lean towards science. And his um, Henry and his sister. I'm going to call him Henry if that's okay. Um, Henry and his sister kind of leaned towards the arts more. You know, he was a cello player. He was, you know, in college he was a writer. Um, his sister was into kind of helping immigrants at the time. And this was in, in the early 1900s. So um, his mother's family was a little bit more eccentric. So there were some stories about them that were um, almost, uh, well, I guess eccentric is a good word. So, um, but his father's family was more kind of scientific and by the book kind of people.
1: It was interesting. I, I, I... One of the passages that stands out is when you describe how, going back to how uh, uh fiercely agnostic as you put it they were was how uh, his father had his students reading had his children reading Thomas Huxley rather than right. uh, you know religious texts and and yet it 's interesting that uh you, you, you uh posit that it was uh, the fact that Henry was the youngest that mm-hmm. he uh, you know didn 't quite seem to fall into that scientific orbit. And yet, as you described, he had a, a, a very, uh, you know, uh, he was academically very accomplished. It, uh, he, you mentioned he started uh, Columbia College at the age of 15.
0: Right, which was really amazing when you, when you look at the kinds of um, requirements they had to get into college back then, and especially into Columbia. So yeah, he was, he was brilliant, really, as, was, as were the rest of them, actually. And, and, and his as, father was a chemist, so you know they, they came from a professional background.
1: And, and as you described, he not only starts his education at a uh, you know at, a, at his college education at a very precocious age. He also early on is very precocious about his politics, and I was mm-hmm. if you to explain a bit more about that because that is a thread that runs through the entire book.
0: Well, I think one thing was I feel like he, you know I never could really without him actually saying i rebelled against my father in you know letters or correspondence i do feel like he did rebel a little bit against that because he really went into um possibly not being religious but really working for jewish organizations for you know a good 10 solid years of his life so that was um one thing and um his rebellion yeah it started pretty pretty early he um considered himself I guess, a little different than his classmates at Columbia. And, you know, it's hard to say because you have to really have proof of, you know, to read the correspondence or letters or something uh, about how he felt. But later on, many years after he graduated, he talked about how he he wasn't like the rest of them. And I think part of it was because um, he was gay, and I think he didn't quite identify with everybody else, whether he identified At a young age, as being gay, it's hard to know. Um, But later on, he did, and and I guess he felt separate from everybody for one of those reasons. And he was also attracted, I think, pretty early on to the anarchist cause because they were like the only political group um, in America that kind of accepted um, homosexuals. So I think that was a big part of it.
1: You you make this one uh, intriguing uh, hypothesis. Where you describe how uh when his class was graduating, they took this anonymous poll which they aligned themselves politically, and you describe how uh they many of them identified themselves as democrat republican independent, and yet there was one person in the entire class who identified right. identified as a radical and, and and I was wondering if you could kind of explain uh you know how you drew that conclusion there
0: well it's funny because I looked at I have the um the 1900 class book, and um, what was it called? I, I have it here. Um, the Naughty Naughtyans. It was the 1900 class book where people described themselves. So there were little biographies about each person. And so I was looking through it, to, and I went to Columbia University and looked at their archives to try to figure out if it was indeed him. And there were maybe one or two other people who kind of leaned towards um, more c- progressive kinds of um, lifestyles. So, you know, I think I put in the book that it wasn't, you know, I couldn't say 100% that it was him, but it really did seem like it was him because he really did go on to live the most um radical kind of life. So, it made sense to me that it that he was the one. And it was a very small class. Um so it it was likely that that he was the one who who that would fit the bill.
1: You describe how you know, early on, he, you know, he realizes he's gay. He, uh, you describe how, you know, that kind of puts him out of, you know, in a sense, he, it, at that time, there was not necessarily, for lack
0: of a better word, a niche for him. And No, it was very, and it was unsafe. It was dangerous. Yes.
1: And you also describe how he also seemed to, be, have difficulty finding a niche professionally. And in a way, it seems to run through his entire life. But early on, you, uh, when he, when he graduates from college, uh, he seems to, uh, shift from one profession to another. Uh, mm-hmm. Almost, uh, and, and what's, what made it so fascinating was the fact that it was also seamless. It wasn't as though he had to go back and undergo a lot of retraining, or he had to go and make a, a series of connections. He seemed to go from one to another almost as though it was part of a much, you know, kind of like there's a much broader label of 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 you know writer activist that he was, and that he you know kind of assumes early on, even though he's not just a journalist. Or just a lawyer, or just an act, a political activist.
0: Yeah, he really did move. He, for his whole life, he did that. He zigzagged kind of from one, you know, from law to literature. It just wasn't out of character for him. Um, and sometimes I think it was his restlessness. Um, he just w- he would get bored. I think <laughs> kind of more <laughs> easily than the next person. Um, and with law, by the way, he really I think he didn't like it. Actually, I know he didn't like it. It, it was obvious through some um, interviews and, and some correspondence that he really didn't like it. I'm guessing because his family was very professional. He had a brother who was an engineer. His other brother wasn't was a scientist. His father was a scientist. That maybe law was the thing they thought he should go into, and he really didn't. Let la- you know he was okay at it, but he didn't like it. And um, he even convinced another friend that um, you know your dream. Is music. This was a friend of the family, and um, this person was working in business. Your dream is music. Go for the music. Um, so, so he was he was convincing him to follow his dream, like he followed his dream because his real calling was writing.
1: You also point out that one of the reasons why he might have felt you know that the legal career wasn't for him was as you describe at this time where he's embracing this radical political identity and he's beginning to. Uh, submit writings to radical publications, he's serving as a lawyer for a gas company.
0: Right, I know. That was one – I did find that court case, and I was surprised about that. Although and, some of the other lawyers he worked for were, were fairly progressive, you know, for the law offices were fairly progressive and, and um, maybe not radical, but more progressive than others.
1: So you describe how his – you know, He, he really is, he sees himself much more as a writer. I was wondering if you could describe a bit his, his writing at this stage of his life. Here we're talking about, this is like uh, the early teens, uh, yeah. 1905, 1910. And he is, as, as you explained, he is trying to find not just his niche in, in life, but he's also trying to define himself as a writer. And as you explained, he is exploring a lot of different uh, types of writing during this period.
0: Right, he he was trying to be a playwright for a while and um he was a little bit involved with some of the local in local New York City which is I guess where you want to be if you're a playwright. Um he was he was kind of involved with them. There was a playwright named Paul Kester and he was sort of a mentor to him, I guess. Um but he never had anything um produced. And that was in his early twenties. And then, but he was doing other kinds of writings too. He was doing short stories. He was doing plays. And in 1912, it was a real coup. He got a um, a short story in a magazine called The Forum. And other writers who who wrote for The Forum were Ezra Pound and Edna St. Vincent Millay. So that was a real coup for him. But it was really the only short story that he had published. Um, and then he kind of moved on to journalism at that point so he worked for um the new york world and the evening post was the big one that he started for in the um in the in the teens 1900s and then he kind of and evening post back then was very liberal very progressive as opposed to what the post might be considered now um they were kind of fighting for social justice issues a lot of the same kinds of social justice issues that are talked about today. And um, in 1914, he managed to get an article in the masses, which was a pretty radical publication. So, um, you know, he was kind of moving into, into that lifestyle and moving into, um, you know, knowing people in the village, Greenwich Village, and, um, you know, kind of becoming part of that community.
1: It's interesting that he becomes associate with that community because a lot of the people from that community end up playing this very prominent role in uh, not just left-wing politics in the United States and left-wing journalism in the United States during this period, but then they also go to Europe uh, during the First World War and afterward and become this very important conduit of information to the United States. And you... Uh, situate Henry Alsberg in that group, and you describe his travels, but he also had this very unusual role as this uh government official he and, and and he associates with some very important people like henry morgenthau and uh and and is and has a and is in unlike a lot of these other writers, he also is much more familiar with the Middle East during this period as well
0: yes, yeah, he moved between a lot of different worlds, and I think because of his family. Um he moved between the intellectual German Jews from his youth, the Wilson uh Woodrow Wilson Democrats, um anarchist Russian Jews, nonconformists um from Greenwich Village, bo- Bohemians, the liberals at the Evening Post, radicals at the Masses. So part of it was from um his family connections and part of it was from the people he he met, you know, on his own. Um, and he you know, as you know, he went to Turkey as the assistant to the ambassador and this was during during World War one, but before the United States was um, involved in World war one so he was the this was after Henry morgenthau came back home, and there was another ambassador, and he went along with that ambassador but later on he he did work with Henry morgenthau um, in eastern europe so he he and I think a lot of it was because his brother um, who worked in washington at you know at the uh, Bureau of, I think it was called the Bureau of Chemistry, but it, it became the FDA. Um, a lot of it was because of his brother's um, contacts. So, yeah, he moved between a lot of different worlds. Not, you know, like most people didn't do that.
1: I found it especially interesting because you describe how it was during this period that though he never becomes religious, he starts to become much more uh, uh, aware and involved with Jewish political activism, particularly his work for the Joint Distribution Committee. But also through that, he has this contact with this, uh, you know, this, this Zionist movement, which during the war, uh, you know, it has this dramatic advance in terms of the Balfour Declaration. And you describe how he's, he's in contact with this growing community of, of, you know, Jewish political activists in the Middle East, and how he uh, how that uh, helps him to uh, assess and develop his own identity as as a politician and, and and as an activist.
0: Right, he he did well. It started in Turkey, where he saw. I mean, the Armenians were the ones who were really faced. Well, they did face genocide, um, but they were. There was a Jewish population in Turkey as well, and they were suffering also. And that's where he met the people from the JDC and different activist organizations. And then later again, he met them in Paris when he was working. He was sent to Paris. He was sent to um, as a foreign correspondent for the nation, I guess, um, right at the end of World War One. And so he, his he crisscrossed from you know working for the Nation writing articles to working for the JDC, and it all kind of intersected together. But his um, he, he, he was really attracted towards Jewish causes and, and his cultural roots, and it didn't come from um, what he was brought up with. It didn't come from his his um, family home. It came from what he was seeing at different places in Eastern Europe and and the. Um, the horror he was seeing with the pogroms and reporting on that, and then trying to help them, and then putting himself in danger, where he was, you know, going through these small Eastern European, Central and Eastern European towns, and and you know, bringing people money to help them survive and, and things like that. So, um, you know, it was really a time where um, there were these conflicts um, post World War One, post the armistice, and he was kind of moving in that in that arena as a, as a journalist and as a relief worker, as both.
1: As you describe in the book, his, he wears his politics on his sleeve and he's not the modern, uh, you know, let's air both sides. You know, journalists. He, he's right, very that's much, true. He's very much of of a, a a partisan. You described that in a lot of his journalism, and, and given some of the things that that he witnessed during that period, the the communist revolution in Hungary, in 1919, uh, as you described the pogroms, uh, the the aftermath of the Armenian genocide. It's he he definitely is a person who had a very evident reaction to that and let that come through in his writing.
0: Yeah, I think he almost took it personally. Um and he he did let it come through in his writing. And and like I said, he were, you know, he would um kind of do double duty writing about um, you know, different places in Poland, different places and and the politics of it too. You know, um Czechoslovakia, which was a new country, so he would he would write about that. And some of it, you know, I read a lot of articles, and you can't fit everything into a book. And some of it was a little bit more objective than others, um, but a lot of it was quite subjective. So um, he, he, yeah.
1: He, he also during this period uh, cements his friendship with Emma Goldman. I thought that was a particularly interesting one because of both where he is and where they go. And it, it seems to be the point at which he is most clearly identifiable as an anarchist, which is an identity that, as you explained, he subsequently sort of uh, you know evolves out of.
0: Right, right. I, I don't know if he evolved out of anarchism. He was described, and I'm not sure exactly what this means, as a philosophical anarchist. But when he first met Emma Goldman, he, he was um, interested in the Soviet, as he called it, the um, – their experiment, Um, and he was in favor of it. And then as he saw, and he became very close to Emma Goldman, and she was in favor of it too. She was actually um, exiled from the United States to the Soviet Union for her activism in the United States. Um, And they became, when they met, they became very close, actually. And she was kind of like a mother figure to him, I think. And I found so many letters between them, I won't say hundreds, maybe dozens of letters, maybe a hundred, Um, And they were very personal letters where they really talked about their, um, what they felt about, you know, life and, you know, their own lives and, and, you know, a lot of emotions were expressed in these letters. But um, at first, they were both in favor of the Russian Revolution. But then as they saw some of the um, fascist um, events happening, they both pulled away from that and, and she left Russia and um, he was actually – he turned against the communism part of it. I think he, would, he was still a socialist, a philosophical anarchist, um, and then, of course, a New Dealer. So, um, But they did turn against it, although it did come back to bite him. You know, he was considered by um, – you know, in the 1930s when he was – I mean, I'm kind of jumping ahead. But when he worked for the WPA and then the House Un-American Committee um, – was investigating him, they basically said he was a communist. And he really wasn't. He was actually, a, he was an anti-communist, so it hurt him, but he but he did spend a lot of time in the Soviet Union. And he saw some things he liked, but um, he also saw a lot of the negative things.
1: You, you described, though, that he uh, tended to be initially far more uh excusing of a lot of the problems. And you describe how yeah. as Emma Goldman was you know rapidly souring on the direction that the that the Soviet regime was taking Russia, uh, that that Alzberg tended to be more uh, accommodating, not accommodating, but he tended to be more uh, uh, excusing of the suspension of civil liberties and basically you know, treating it as as a temporary thing. Whereas Emma Goldman had more of a sense that that this wasn't temporary. This was the direction that the regime was going.
0: Right. He he blamed the lack, you know, the problems in the Soviet Union on the Western blockades, the long years of war, uh, the battle. He thought it would change. Um, he praised the Soviets for their vaccination programs, their educational system, um, for their arts programs. And, and they had a lot of fights. They they had arguments about it, um, you know, until he eventually kind of came around to see her way of thinking.
1: It was interesting how, Throughout that period, he remained involved with relief. He described how even into the early 1920s, he's with the Joint Distribution Committee. He's involved with uh, Herbert Hoover's American Relief uh, Administration when they're dealing with the famine in the Ukraine. So he still is straddling those worlds. And in a sense, uh, by doing both, he's able to have the best of both worlds. He's both able to. Uh, in a sense, advocate for his cause, uh, understand his cause, uh, get to travel, but also he's working to try to achieve it through his his, his relief work.
0: Yeah, I think part of it was, um, and Emma Goldman said this: she thought that his heart ached more, and this is her quote, when Jews were being persecuted. So, despite his upbringing, he did feel more um, connected to to Jewish population, and you know, and the, and then the things he saw um it really affected him greatly so that's that's what she saw what Emma Goldman saw so when he went back i think it was the the second time that he worked for the jdc the the um joint distribution committee it it was probably less out of um what he saw as a great you know soviet experiment as as um as it was to help the jewish population
1: It was interesting reading about how often he went back and forth because I'm thinking as I'm reading this that nowadays this is of we take for granted. People can hop on a plane and be there in a few hours, and this idea of living this transatlantic life is something so many of us could take for granted. But he was doing it in the days of steamships, and yet he was making this journey uh, several times over the course of this, uh, not just his life, but just this period of, say, the 19-teens into the 1920s.
0: Yeah, I think there were about I think I counted six or seven transatlantic journeys from the late 19 uh, maybe 1918. Actually, there was one more before that. Um, but and then it, until his last one was I think 1931. So yeah, and these weren't short trips. It wasn't just jumping on a plane. These were these were long trips. However, he did he had some family money at that point. It didn't he didn't always later on. But in that period, I think he was able, and plus the nation was paying him. Um, at least some money. So he was able to not, you know, he wasn't in steerage. <laughs> he was uh, in, in in a better class of uh, of a room. So, But still, you know, these, these were trips that were, you know, maybe a week long. And one of the trips he came back, you know, he was also, because he was doing so many different things, nobody knew what he really thought. So the Soviets arrested him at one point. Um, they thought he was a spy. And then... Um, the FBI, the Americans were investigating him and they they thought he was a Soviet, a Bolshevik spy too. Um, so, you know, everybody thought he was a spy for the other side and he really wasn't. He was mostly just a journalist and a, refugee, and a worker for the refugees.
1: I love that story about his arrest that you describe in the book. And I was wondering if you could uh, recount it because it, it's such a funny story and I think it's, it, it, in a way it speaks to uh Henry Alsberg himself his his self confidence in terms of how you know that arrest played out the way that it did
0: yeah he seemed to have a sense of humor about it which is kind of kind of funny and i wish you know there was um an article he wrote for the nation where he talked about um writing in his diary and of course you know there was if he wrote a diary it's it you know it's not to be found now but um as the incident was described, he got the um arresting officer drunk. And um when they got to Moscow, um, you know, the, the semi conscious officer, <laughs> you know, um accompanied him to the police station and um Henry Allsberg said, Here's the man you sent out to find me and supposedly he spent several weeks in jail. There were a couple of different accounts of that, but he did testify when he testified for um House an American Activities Committee. He said he spent several weeks in jail. So, um, and the and the other thing I found that was I had a really a lot of fun doing the research. One thing I found was an was a letter that Emma Goldman wrote to Lenin to try to get him out of jail. So that was that was kind of interesting.
1: So he's very involved in these activities in Europe, and yet as the 1920s wears on, he is doing. He's living more in the United States, and he's beginning to. Uh, uh, go back into uh, writing plays. And I was wondering if you would explain what was happening during this period with the Provincetown Playhouse and then his involvement with the book.
0: Oh, okay. So, um, yeah, he was back and forth a lot. I mean, in the 1920s, if, if you looked at, you know, um, a, a zigzag line of where he went, you know, you'd have New York, Eastern Europe, Paris, London. He went to California to visit his brother um, and to do some writing. Uh, so he Mexico. was all over the place, but he did spend a lot of time in the United States. And um, he had a childhood friend; her name was Stella Block Hanau, and she worked for the Provincetown Playhouse. And she probably got him, helped him get a job there. And he was a he was a producer, and he was also an associate producer, and he did all sorts of things. Um, you know, working with the Provincetown Playhouse, he worked with Eugene O'Neill. He worked with um, a lot of different people. And one of the biggest, most important plays that they did that he helped produce was Abraham's Bosom, which was um, basically, um, it it revolved around racial justice, um, and it was about African Americans. And at this time, that was kind of a controversial play to produce. Um, So he did a lot of different things. with. He he helped produce one of um, Eugene O'Neill's plays. Um, and then the other thing around the like in the same time, you know, he was walking across downtown more to the neighborhood playhouse where he was involved in writing a play called the Dybbuk. And the Dybbuk was originally written in Yiddish, um, and he was able to get the right to um, translate it into English for the English-speaking stage. And... It became a, he did that for the for the neighborhood playhouse. It was sort of a mystical play. Um, it was described as sort of a melding of Fiddler on the Roof, The Exorcist, and Romeo and Juliet, and um, very mystical. Um, and it, it it was a hit, and it, it did really well. And um, the show sold out. The run you know started small, but it extended. Um, New York Times theater critics really gave it great reviews. Um, and then <laughs> the really interesting thing to me was that I found out that George Gershwin loved, loved the show and he wanted to do, do his first full length opera of the Dybbuk. And it would, was supposed to be at the Metropolitan Opera House. They signed contracts. It was supposed to open in 1931. I think it was, um, So Henry Allsberg would have been the, um, you know, would have been involved with this play, which was Gershwin's, which would have been Gershwin's first full-length opera. But then there was a glitch in the copyright and the stock market crashed and it didn't happen. And then Gershwin's first full-length opera wasn't the Dybbuk. It was Porgy and Bess, but it could have been the Dybbuk. So that would have changed his life completely. So I thought that was kind of interesting and it was hard on him because, you know, here you're, about to embark on this Metropolitan Opera House um, extravaganza, and then it doesn't happen. So it kind of sent him into a depression.
1: And as you described, that then was compounded by the nationwide depression, and he was really struggling during uh, the early 1930s to... Uh, establish a living for himself to, you know, he seems to be a little uh, unmoored. He's, he's, he's sort of drifting, trying to find something. Nothing's quite catching.
0: Yeah, and he, he was, you know, at one point, like 10 years before, he was a very well-respected foreign correspondent. And then he, he yeah, he had, he was unmoored. He couldn't finish projects. He would start, you know, he started an autobiography, which he probably didn't finish because it's nowhere to be found um he started doing other things he considered moving to um a cooperative farm in Detroit that some friends had started but he really didn't think he would be happy there um so he yeah he was really disconnected from everything um and um he was thank goodness able to reconnect with some people in New York City kind of an American the American Network of Writers and Artists and also some government and civic officials also probably with the help of his brother um right before um I guess right as Roosevelt was elected but yeah he had a hard time he 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 suffered from depression i mean i couldn't put a psychological um diagnosis in the book because that wasn't really my job but it seemed from you know a lot of the letters that i read that he mostly that he wrote to Emma Goldman because he was very open with her Um, But it did seem like he suffered from, you know, severe depression at some times.
1: How is it that he becomes part of the New Deal uh, workforce?
0: Okay, so here he was back in America trying to find himself, trying to decide if he wants to go, you know, work on a farm, Um, and at the same time, um, President Roosevelt was elected, his brother was appointed to a commission to study econ- international economic conditions and advise President Roosevelt. And then he had some other friends. He had a, a friend who was um, who was assistant to a senator and Henry Morgenthau, Jr., who was the son of um, Henry Morgenthau, Sr., of course. And Henry had known him through the JDC. Um, he also knew Felix Frankfurter, who he worked, he he advised earlier, many years earlier. So he knew all these different people, and one was an acquaintance from New York, another writer, and this man was named Jacob Baker, and he he was able to secure a high pos- a position in the New Deal's um, Federal Emergency Relief Administration, which was called FERA because there's a lot of acronyms when you start talking about the New Deal, WPA, FERA. So FERA was came before the WPA, and. This man, Jacob Baker, hired Henry to work um, for the publications division of Ferris. So that's how he got into the New Deal. And one of the one of the books he wrote, actually the book he wrote in that period, was America Fights the Depression, which is a really beautiful book. It's still, you know, I have a copy. It's a very sturdy, large format book with a lot of um, beautiful photos. And it promoted the ac- accomplishments of the Civil Works Administration, which was part of Farrah's. So that's how we got into the, um, the New Deal, I guess.
1: But fair itself was designed to be temporary. So after that period, there is this recognition that more needs to be done, and that's when the WPA is created. And then Allsberg makes this transition that you describe, uh, thanks to uh, Harry Hopkins.
0: Yeah, Harry Hopkins um said something like, you know, because most of the project a lot of the projects most of the one most of the projects that people remember are the public works projects, you know, roads and, and hospitals and 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 things like that. And things that are still here today, um your, well the murals came later. Um but all sorts of things that they built, um swimming pools, um in, in cities all sorts of uh, public arts projects, and Harry Hopkins said, "Well, something to the effect of writers and artists have to eat too." <laughs> and what was um, what what they designed was the federal. It was called Federal Project Number One, and it was it encompassed the theater, the art, the music, and writers project. And it didn't happen until maybe later in um, the summer of 1935. They kind of worked on it off time, and Henry Allsberg was involved with. The discussions, and then when it came to to be and and they created um, Federal One for Real, um, those four programs. He was he was chosen as the Writers Project director, probably because of his involvement with Farah and, and the Writing and Publications Division.
1: What was alsberg like as an administrator?
0: Well, he was seen <laughs> he was seen as not a good administrator. He was he was criticized they thought he had bad management abilities um you know i kind of refute that a little bit i mean he maybe he wasn't the perfect administrator but i think because he was a little bit um more arts, artsy um and he had a kind of a eccentric personality i think that brought a lot of the creative aspects to the w, to the writers project that might not have been um you know, an official guide to the United States is what they set out to do. And I think if he were the perfect administrator, um, not so visionary maybe, it wouldn't have had the literary quality um, that it ended up having. Um, you know, maybe it would have been a tour guide that would be used um, just, you know, not as something – they were more creative than that. They weren't just tour guides.
1: I was wondering if you could explain that a bit more, the, the American Guide, because you described the uh, development of the project, and it really was this, this very fascinating project. and It's one that, uh, as you explained, you know, in many ways still endures to this day.
0: Well, they they started as um, thinking that it would be a five-volume American Guide, and they would divide it into regional sections, um, and then it kind of expanded into um it wouldn't just be lodgings and landmarks and automobile routes, which was it first was supposed to be um, you know they started including cultural aspects of different cities and, and states um they wanted to do um they wanted to include um, cultural um, let me just i'm just trying to uh, remember the Hold on one second. Um, they, they were, he was a visionary, I guess. And he looked at civil rights as something to include. He looked at um, including immigrants and African Americans in these books. So they wanted to use, um, they wanted to put this into the book, into the books, actually. And then they tend, there ended up being books for every state, um, and they had fantastic writers. Um, So they ended up with natural resources besides, you know, tour routes and they had cultural essays, scientific essays. Um, They had critical acclaim for their literary um, writing. Um, Some were bestsellers. Um, One of the things that one of the books, which was the Washington book, which was the second one to be um, published um, included a section that was written by Sterling Brown, who was um, appointed as the African-American director for the Federal Writers Project. And it was critical of, um, you know, Washington, D.C., and how it treated African-Americans. And, you know, so that was that was really um, quite visionary to keep that in. And then, actually, after Henry Allsberg was fired, they changed that, that essay, and they kind of toned it down a little bit. So... Um, You also also described
1: described his efforts to get Zora Neale Hurston involved, uh, how she was working on the Florida book, but ultimately his efforts to get her appointed as an editor uh, were were frustrated.
0: Yeah, they were. And, you know, well, it was Florida. It was the South, and it was the 1930s. Um, He did the best. I think she got paid a little bit more than she was supposed to, but, um, you know, she couldn't be in charge of anything. She couldn't be um, a real administrator. She did have some more... Freedom um, than perhaps other people had because of her status. I mean, she was already a writer and a a famous folklorist, so um, she deserved to have a better position. But, you know, because of the time, she she didn't.
1: You also also mentioned one other project project that uh, he he did, did which which I think speaks to. Uh, his idea and his efforts and that was the uh, slave oral histories and he described it's not a project that he initiated but it's definitely one that he uh, put the backing of the fwp behind
0: wait which histories did you say
1: uh, the, the the oral histories uh, of the former slaves
0: oh yeah that was that was amazing and that was um uh, Benjamin botkin was really kind of um, spearheaded that and yeah so there there are about I think about 3,000 or so histories of former slaves. And these were people, you know, they had a deadline because these were people in their 80s and 90s. And they had a deadline of them, you know, being very old. And they sent people out to interview them. And, and it wasn't perfect. I mean, in, honestly, in the South, um, some of the interviews they they used, um, you know, they, they kind of, um, they're not looked at as really... Um, great histories because of how the, um, interviewer wrote them up. But others are really telling. So, you know, and you can look online at the library of Congress website and you can find them. So it's really for educators, it would be really interesting. It's really interesting to use because you can see what they remembered and some of the, you know, it's horrific what they remember, you know, one man talking about his, he's five years old and his parents are taken away from him and, um, you know, or seeing his his father being whipped, you know, really horrific things. Um, so, yeah, so that they, they were actually, they actually managed to get thousands of those oral histories. And they did the same with a lot of immigrants, too, which is interesting. If if you look also on the Library of Congress website, they have a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them.
1: What was it that ultimately brought uh, Allsberg to the attention of the House Committee on Un-American Activities?
0: sort of all all along um they were being criticized from the time they started by more conservative members of congress you know um southern democrats and republicans calling basically saying they were a communist outfit and part of it was they they you know they didn't support roosevelt and they would do anything to bring him down so um you know they were on their radar all along and then, when some of the books came out, they would, some of the American guidebooks came out, they would look at these books and, and say, okay, this is, you know, a radical agenda that these people have. Like, for instance, the Massachusetts guidebook talked about Sacco and Vanzetti. And they thought this was horrible, you know, to talk about these anarchists in this book. And I, I can't remember what the exact wording was, but Sacco and Vanzetti had more. Um, Line, had 13 lines or 16 lines or something like that in the book, and Paul Revere only had I forgot what it was, maybe five or something. Um, that's not the exact number, but you know they were they were mad that Paul Revere had fewer, um, few a few fewer amount of lines than the Sacco and Vanzetti story. So they just saw them as as radicals, and actually a lot of them were you know progressives, and maybe some of them were radicals, but um, they were just. The committee, the House on American activity Committee, was formed in, um, I think it was 1938 or 1937. And they were determined to prove that the arts projects were full of communists. And they didn't really have the desire to separate the truth from, you know, the uh, the fanciful, I guess. So um, it started pretty early on.
1: And Allsberg's background made him an obvious target.
0: Right. They They saw that. And, and yeah, they saw that he traveled in, so, in the Soviet Union and they knew they didn't know how friendly he was with Emma Goldman. I mean, when he when he was testifying um, in front of UAC, he um, didn't quite own up to how close he was to her. He said he knew her, you know. Yeah, we were acquaintances, but he didn't quite own up to it because it would have looked, you know, it would have made it very difficult. But um, when they did interview him... Um, and he talked about writing um, a book about political prisoners in the Soviet Union. They thought he was referring to um, prisoners under the czarist re- regime, and he was talking about under the Soviet regime. And they were kind of surprised because, you know, they thought he was this um, communist, and he was really in, he was really an anti-communist, and he was blacklisted from some of his friends who were communists. So. Um, yeah, so it came early on, really, and they just went after him. They also went after the Federal Theater Project as much as they went after him.
1: So did he ultimately leave uh, the FWP on his own terms, or was he, in effect, driven out?
0: He was driven out. It was between um, UAC, House and american Activities Committee, and then other later um, congressional committees, you know, budgeting committees, things like that. They were just looking for anything to get rid of him and also to close the writer's project, to close the theater project. And the theater project went first. They, they just closed it down. Um, and then what happened was he had written a letter to the nation in 1929, I think it was, which talked about political prisoners and, um, you know, kind of took a liberal, um, viewpoint of why these prisoners were in jail and prison reform, he believed in prison reform, and the things he wrote, they kind of went back and found, and they used that to to go after him. And um, basically, the new person who took over, Harry Hopkins was gone by then. Um, Harry Hopkins was a big supporter of the Federal Writers Project and the Federal Theaters Project, and a new person took over, Colonel Harrington, and he was not as... um, he he was not as in favor of these projects and he wanted him to be fired and this was as um as the books were rolling off the presses the american guidebooks and children's books and books about um african americans and books about um different ethnic groups were rolling off the presses and, and henry olsberg was just really trying to make sure that these books which were you know being produced very regularly He wanted to make sure they were um, they were published and they fired him and he wouldn't leave, which is kind of interesting. Um, He just wouldn't leave for about maybe a couple of weeks because he wanted to make sure that these books, you know, survive the publication process. So that's sort of how it ended
1: he he ends this period of his life and and it's it's obviously a very difficult period for him but he at the same time he is the former head of a federal agency he has all these contacts and yet, and yet it seems that the rest the, he lives for another 30, uh, for another 31 years but the rest of his life seems almost anticlimactic in some
0: ways yeah it does i think um you know part of he did go back and in, into to Washington to work for the office of war information which is I found sort of strange because he was a pacifist. Um, but he also, I think, by that point needed the money. You know, he had some family money before that, but I think he kind of didn't have that family money anymore. Um, his, brother, his brother Carl by that time had died. Um, his mother had died. You know, because very often he would go back to live with his mother in New York City, but by the early 1930s she had passed away. Um, so he didn't have – he actually had to work. By then, he couldn't just go travel around and volunteer for causes and things like that. Um, so anyway, he worked for the Office of War Information until um, he was accused of homosexuality, and which was the kind of thing you can accuse somebody of then, and he, and he, and he, and he lost that job. Um, so he did go back to New York City. Um, he lived in Greenwich Village, and interestingly, he lived right next door to the Stonewall Inn which um you know it was before the Stonewall Inn was became famous for what it became famous for but he lived I have a photo of him of his building right next to the Stonewall Inn which was kind of interesting um but his life did change a little bit it kinda, he kind of he kind of stepped back and he was also not that young by then so he was probably let's see he was probably 60 by then um so he was kind of winding down his work life I guess and he did um, managed to get an editorial job with um, Hastings House, which was one of the publishers that, that published a, a lot of the Writers' Projects book, books. So, you know, that kept him working in New York City. And um, eventually he moved to Palo Alto, California, where his sister lived. And he, they they lived together in California. And he did travel around, and he, he still wrote. He, he wrote a lot of um, private things, um short stories, plays, nothing that was published and a lot of it was about um his sexuality, so it couldn't be published at at that point and this was in the probably fifties um very early sixties um he did remain friends with a man named Vincent McHugh, who's another really interesting person. He was um the editor of some of the um New York City writers project books, which are beautifully written. And he was a poet, and he moved to San Francisco, and um, they stayed friends for many years. So I have a lot of letters between those two. Um, you know, so Henry Alsberg um, was a little bit in, not involved in the Beat scene, the Beat writing scene, but Vincent McHugh was. So he kind of um, had a little bit of a connection to that, in that he, you know, heard about it from his younger friend Vincent.
1: That was, that was what I found kind of surprising about that part of his life, which is that in so many ways, ways he seems to be this natural elder state statesman, state. not no. somewhat, just, just necessarily the political, political left, left, but also this kind of cultural left. left. And, and in that, in that sense, theory, it, it is rather uh, surprising to read about how, in a sense, he doesn't play that role. It's, 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 it's the position that he should have assumed, but ultimately didn't. And that seemed a little strange.
0: Yeah, it's it's hard to say why. Um, I forgot to mention that one of the things he did was he wrote a book called Let's Talk About the Peace, which was a, basically a pacifist book. He saw he saw that um, I guess he didn't really like how the um, United Nations was going. He didn't really see peace coming after World War II, um, so he wrote that book and and it you know got some good reviews. But, um, yeah, he did pull back a lot from, um, you know, being a public persona. I think he was also very insulted about being fired from the Writers Project because he didn't always want to talk about it. Um, There was a man named Jerry Manjohn who wrote a book called The Dream and the Deal, and that's what really brought um, the Federal Writers Project back into the public eye, I think. And, And after that, there were a lot of books, more books written about it. Um, And I think by then, Henry was, I guess, in his 80s. And he really didn't want to be interviewed, and he didn't want to be that involved in the whole process. So I think there was a sort of um, feeling insulted about being fired from what he saw as um, a very important role.
1: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
0: What I'm working on now is I'm trying to find the time to spread the word about this book because I think um, I think Henry Allsberg was a really important person in American life and I would like more people to know about him. I've become a little bit more involved with um, other groups that, that talk about the New Deal. Um, the Living New Deal is a group in um, out of Berkeley and they're doing a lot of stuff also to spread the word about the good works of the New Deal. I was really lucky a couple of weeks ago to meet um, Franklin Roosevelt's grandson, whose name is Franklin Roosevelt. Um, so I'm just trying to get more involved with groups like that and also just you know find a way to spread the word about Henry Allsburg and, and the work he did in his life.
1: Thank you very much for taking some time to spread the word here at the New Books Network about the book. I hope you have a wonderful day.
0: Thank you so much, and I hope you do too, and, and I'm happy to talk to you. Thank you.